0: You are listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.
1: Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO and I'm thrilled this evening to be welcoming Ian Baxter and, and his wife Louise, and Ian is going to talk to us about his work. As well as um, at coordinating the adult programs, I'm occasionally deployed to, do, um, to work on exhibitions, to add the education component to exhibitions, and I had the great privilege of working on Ian Baxter's show, so um, I'm hoping you enjoy this evening as much as I've enjoyed working with him. So in true Ian Baxter style, when I'm asking for a bio to introduce him, he gave me a postcard. So to be in, in tune with Ian, I shall, this is how I'll, I'll introduce him. Um, the And Man, and it's all a list of ands. So he is the And Man, he's in, legally included, the ampersand, at the end of, his, end of his name, which he will talk about. Canada's first conceptual artist. Um, wonderful conceptual artist who has influenced many others. We have, I hope you've all seen it, if not go, after, go as soon as possible, we have a whole exhibition of his work on the fourth floor. He's the McLuhan of visual arts, and certainly Marshall McLuhan was an enormous influence um, on his work. He's worked collaboratively a lot, hence the and at the end of his name, but he's worked as you know, with the, the Anything Company, was one of the, the companies he formed. It, all, all sorts of names, he'll be talking about that. Regards himself as an eco and a bio artist. And we had great fun the other day doing a webinar for teachers to go with Earth Day. Uh, he has the Order of Canada, Ontario, and British Columbia. He has a Twitter account. I d- <laughs> Does he use it? That's the question. Uh, he has a very interesting online re- catalogue re- resume done by somebody called Adam Lauder at York University. So we'll give you the address of that, and you can go online and find all sorts of information about him. The next line says, Masturbating Life Makes Art, which is on his T-shirt, and I will get him to explain that. Um, Vancouver Photoconceptualism. Hugely influential, and he might talk to you about some of the people he taught, who've gone on to become very famous, like Ian Wallace. He lives in Windsor, Ontario, since 1988, with his wife, Louise Chance Baxterand. And she's his collaborator as well, and they've been there, she's been his wife for 30 years. And he is an emeritus professor at the University of Windsor. We'll have questions at the end, so please prepare some, so he can be collaborative with the audience.
2: Okay, thank you, Jillian, for a nice introduction, and thank you all for coming. Uh, We will be having some fun, but also very serious stuff at the same time. Uh, The topic of my speech, my little talk, is uh, how I became the Ant-Man. So along the way, you'll get to understand that. I'm just getting used to all these different uh, situations. Anyways, what i like to do in the beginning is explain my background. I was born in England. 1936, and I came to Canada when I was one, and I lived in Calgary. My father was a mechanical engineer, and so I grew up in Calgary, and uh, I'm one of the lucky children of the age, which some of you are, who was able to go out and play in the woods and live down on cliffs and climb trees and do all those things. So that was really an important part of my background and how I grew to love nature and to work in nature a lot, right? And along the way, I became very involved with uh, sports, and so I did skiing in Banff and all around those areas in Alberta, and I ended up uh, lucking out and being on the Alberta Junior Ski Team. And at the same time, I was interested in um, furthering my education, so I ended up going to the University of Idaho in uh, Moscow, Idaho. But before I went, a very important kind of epiphany, not the kind you want to do, happened. I broke my neck in a car accident when I was 18. And uh, those are the kind of things that really set your life in a certain way that uh, you know, if you don't have that happen, you won't know it. But for me, it was really important because it made me realize that life is very fleeting and that you should have fun, but serious fun, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, just have a great time and do things with your life. right? So that's kind of the beginning stages in Alberta there. So because of all the background in nature and in Banff and everywhere, I wanted to actually uh, be involved with nature in some capacity. So I thought I would become a forester, or somebody involved in the, in the uh, sciences dealing with forestry. So I went to the University of Idaho. But pretty soon I realized that uh, forestry was not my main interest. It was zoology. So I switched to zoology. And I spent four years doing a degree in zoology. And along the way, you know, we stuffed animals. I was trapping mice in southern Idaho and all those places. And, and, uh, and I spent whole summers down there. And that's an important part of my background because the professor I was with had a whole lot of cameras, and, and he made me work with all these cameras and document all the studies that we were doing in, in the vegetation and so on. So he also, one day, he said to me, Ian, I'd like to do... a I'm going to do a wildlife guidebook to the northern Rocky Mountains. And he said, uh, Would you like to do all the drawings? I said, oh, I don't know. I've never done that, but I'll try it. Right. So I ended up doing all these 250 drawings for this book. And it's still in, if you check on eBay or something, you can find this book sometimes. And so these are all the little drawings. And because of that, I said, Well, maybe I should check out an art department. So I went to the art department at Idaho. And I ended up, you know, doing watercolor classes and then looking at Audubon. And in, in our own country, we have a, a really great bird artist who's uh, Fenwick Lansdowne. And so I was, I was interested in Roger Torrey Peterson and all that. But, but somehow there's this thing about me that's about wondering and researching. And so I wasn't totally committed to just being a, a, a wildlife artist, right? Not like Bateman, particularly, but uh, maybe it's wildlife of another kind. But anyway, anyways, what I, so, so what happened is I did all the drawings, and I really liked it, so I started doing watercolor paintings, and uh, one of the most important things happened. I, uh, because of the way that I research and, and scan and look, I, I went to the library on my own, and I started looking up different artists, and lo and behold, one day I ran into this amazing artist whose name is Morris Graves, if you've never checked out his work. Check it out. He's from Seattle, and he's an artist, along with uh, Mark Toby, that, that are important artists from Seattle. And Morris Graves has this amazing way that he works with animals. He has the animals in this spiritual aura, and they're very much imbued with a kind of oriental philosophy and a Buddhist philosophy and so on. So that really excited me, and I read this whole biography about him. And he had gone to Japan, and he was very interested in Buddhism, so that was something that sparked my interest. So I went... Uh, I, I, at that same moment, I'm not sure if a lot of you know it, but Alan Watts is a really important American who interpreted the, the Japanese and the Oriental philosophy for the Western world, and he wrote many books about the way of Zen and all those things. So I was reading all those books, and at the same time he had a radio show that came on once a week, and I taped all his radio talks about Zen. They're, it's a really interesting fellow to check back out again. So as a result of that, I thought, geez, I really want to go to Japan. So I wrote a scholar- for a scholarship, you know, showing all my drawings and saying I wanted to go there. Because the Japanese and the, all the people in the Far East have a kind of philosophy that's a more of a harmony with nature. And at the same time, you know, just to build up this background, um, by going into zoology way back in the f- mid-50s, I took courses in ecology which is the buzzword that we all talk about today. So I was very lucky to actually spend a lot of years thinking about how everything is I- interconnected and so on. So anyways, to make a long story short here, I went to Japan. I lucked out. I got the scholarship. And I went to uh, Kyoto. I lived in Kyoto in 61 and had my first one-man one man show in, in Kyoto. And I also learned how to make the... Well, you just see the Japanese screens upstairs. And a lot of my works were about a kind of... Um, abstract expressionism because we all, as artists, go through all the different movements that are going on And I was very you know, excited about Pollock and all these different people so I, but I like to experiment in these different ways anyways, here we go so there's a Japanese screen, one of the ones that I did, and I did Sumi painting and all those different, so all this was blending into what I was about and what I was learning about you know, philosophy and so on So then uh, I came back to university after uh, my sojourn in Japan and I then, uh, I was starting actually on a Master of Science but I, I changed and I did a, uh, I, I switched to education so I did a Master's of Education but all this time I'm just going to the library and I'm reading books and I'm exhibiting on my own like making art and sending it off to many exhibitions in America with watercolour painting and different things and so you know, like building a kind of track record in what I was doing. So what happened is uh, I finally did the master's, and then I said to myself, you know, I really want to be an artist. So I, I, if you want to teach and back in the late 50s and early 60s, you know, you should have a master of fine arts. So I went to um, another university that's close to Idaho, the University of Idaho. It's called Washington State University. And the state line goes between these two universities. So I went there and I just said, here's my story, and I told them I have this degree in zoology, I've done this book, I went to Japan, I've exhibited in and this and that. And to their credit, they, they accepted me into this graduate program, based on maybe my enthusiasm or what, or something. And so, uh, so I, I ended up doing my Master of Fine Arts in Painting at Washington State. And one of the great things that happened to me there was, they said, well, you don't have any art history background, which was true. So they said, you're going to have to put away all the slides for two years. You're going to have to go in the slide room and, and look at all these slides and catalog them back after the lectures that you're going to help, help the professors do. So that was actually the best thing that I ever had to do because I really learned about art history through all that background and so on. And uh, it also led later to why I, I made some early light boxes and things. But right here you see an early watercolor painting. And um, then I'm going to leap now to UBC. I got my first job in Canada at uh, the at University of British Columbia in 64. And funnily enough, I my neighbor was David Suzuki, because we were both young guys. And, uh, and when you came to the University of British Columbia, they had these this housing that you could use for your first year or two when you arrived. So he was in the house next door. But uh, So my career, but it started there a lot because I... I, I was teaching and everything, and then I... Uh, UBC actually did probably one of the most brilliant things back in the in the mid-'60s. They had a festival for fine arts. For Every two years, they'd have this major festival, and they brought all kinds of interesting people there. They had Buckminster Fuller, and one of the fellows that they really were touting was Marshall McLuhan. And Marshall McLuhan was probably more, the people in Vancouver were more interested in Marshall McLuhan than the people in Toronto were. So he was a real famous guy there, and we actually did an entire happening around Marshall McLuhan's ideas in like 65 and so on, and I was in charge of the visual arts area, but there were dancers and filmmakers and architects and everybody that put together this sensory happening about McLuhan's ideas. And then one of the shows that I did in at UBC was a show with plastic, and I, I ended up bagging an entire apartment in plastic. It's called Bag Place, done in '66, And it's, it, it came out of just because I'm actually somebody that looks at pop culture and my everyday flow of life as I go through it, probably because of that eco-background of looking at ecology as this integration of everything. And so I try to find ways that, I, that my daily life goes about and happens that I can then make art with. So as a result, you know how at, in those early years we were using plastic to start in grocery stores to handle our groceries instead of paper bags. Although now it's come like full cycle, right? Because of what happened with plastic. But um, at that point in time I, I was very really excited about that. And I did this entire apartment bagged in plastic. But I also was interested in doing nonverbal teaching because I looked at teaching and and I'm always very experimental with whatever I do, and I, I thought, well, what if you taught talk without talking? Because when we talk too much, we end up, we end up like destroying the concepts. And especially when you teach art, people come up and say, is this what you want, and how many do I have to do, and all this stuff. So I decided to actually do some classes where I would you know, just do some performances and so on, and then just encourage people to make artwork out of it. So, that was, so those were some of those early experiments. Um, and again, look, working with uh, plastic, you'll see upstairs a lot of vacuum forms that I did. And uh, the, the plastic bagging ended up doing real plastic uh, landscapes and using hard plastic and vacuum forming objects. And the, the actual vacuum forms that you'll see in this exhibition came out of uh, one day I was going in a gas station and I saw a spark plug, champion spark plug, on the on the wall next to the door, and I thought, God, that's amazing, because it allows you to... Uh, it makes a three-dimensional object of this still life. Instead of a painting, you could have this three-dimensional thing. So I started wondering, how could I do that? And I went to big factories that, that made uh, shell signs and SL signs, I talked to the owner and said, can I come and do some things there? And he said, yeah, bring something in on Saturday, and we'll work on it. And so I, I did go and get plastic bottles, and cut them in half and fill them with plaster, and then put them down and use them as models to do those works. So, uh, but, but there's a little precursor to that. Actually, one of my other favorite artists is, uh, is Giorgio Morandi. And if you've never known about this artist, you should check him out. He's this uh, probably one of the greatest still life artists of all time, along with Chardin. <clears throat> but Morandi was of his time. And I thought, well, I would be of my time and use plastic. And so that's kind of how all those uh, works happen. And, of course, in, in this uh, particular image here, I started making bagged landscapes as well. So I, I like the idea you could have water in them and air, and i the blow my own air in there, right? So I figured it was, like, really real, because it had artist's breath in it. <laughs> and stuff. And then... Again, as you can see, I'm I'm just about a lot of different things. I've started to call myself a maximalist, and not a minimalist in life. Right, I'm I'm just about a lot of stuff, and then out of it, out of all this uh, interconnections and patterns, comes ideas for works that I do. And so you will see a, a quite a range of different ways of making artwork, and or performances or videos or whatever it is. So it's kind of uh, the way that I've done most of my work all my life. kind of. So I think it's a more ecological way to be as an artist. And the other really important thing that's happened is I've just been interested in information all my life. And a really other really important part in Vancouver was uh, I was very fortunate to go to Simon Fraser University in 1966 and work in an area that was called a Center for Art and Communication And Simon Fraser was probably one of the first places that ever tried to bring those things together. So I worked with Murray Schaefer, Michael Bottry, and John Giuliani, and a dancer and a filmmaker and communication studies people. And we we sat around for two or three years trying to figure out what we were all about. So in all that thinking is what really helped me formulate a lot of my ideas about information and and the art world and so on. So one of my projects here is in '68 was was shooting piles all over the city of Vancouver. Because for me a lot of the things that you just see in your everyday activities are better than a lot of the artwork that artists try to make. So I thought, well, I could photograph those and then make it into a portfolio and have a map that you could go see all these things. So that's this kind of portfolio there. And I also became, because of McLuhan's ideas, as you can see here, I was very interested in telecommunications things, so I put a a fax, you know, early fax machine in my house and a telex machine and everything. But along the way, I, I wanted to find a way to, uh, to look at the world in a, in a different way as an artist. So um, I decided, well, the biggest thing that we were all about, especially in the 60s, and became aware of was that there, there were corporations. There was IBM, there's there AT&T, and, and all the different corporations that you can think of. And I wondered, well, why can't I just have a company? And be an artist, and I, I I like to think back now that that the company itself was uh, was like a found object, like Duchamp finding the urinal. It's like finding a company and using it as its way. So that's partly how that happened. And my name, if you, and I'm very interested in language, as you'll start to see, especially now that I'm the Ann Man or whatever. So uh, you'll see that the any in, in my own name is. E N E E N and N E am always kind of playing with language in that way, and so the Anything Company was something that I created and formed in '66 and used it as a venue to work on. Um, let me just check here where we're going. So the Anything Company was uh, a way to work and use it, and it actually became a uh, it became a, an actual structure to allow better penetration into everyday activities. Because I remember once going to the CBC and asking them, like, I, I want to run ads on, totally in Canada, across Canada. Uh, I, I did certain kind of quick ads that would be radio ads. And they said, well, well, what kind of company are you or something? And I said, well, we're just a consulting company. And as long as you say that, everything can flow then and work. And uh, because if you just go as John Blow, like, they won't let you do it probably, right? So it's a little bit about joining and changing and doing all those things like that. So it's a kind of, there's a slightly political motive to all that. And so I'm actually now, the little word in quotes, I'm beginning to want to define the word information as we live our lives today. It's called inflammation, because we live in so much information, it's like we're swimming every day in this stuff, right? We need, we need life jackets in order to get through it, right? And so uh, it's really amazing when I walk around, I'm in digressing now, but all, these, all the younger kids that I see, they, they have to hold on to their cell phones. Otherwise, they're not connected to stuff, right? I'm hoping that we learn about a balance in our lives with everything. So anyways, out of all this stuff, uh, you know, there, there was a movement that happened from New York and all over the world. And I'd like to think from Vancouver as well. And it was this conceptual art. Became art that became about ideas and about ideas that have meaning and vi- visualization and everything and and when you do these ideas, they require documentation and photography and so that background I had in zoology was really important for me to take pictures and I, I usually carry camera all the time with me, and I just take pictures of my everyday wanderings that I go as I go through life right? the one on the uh, on the right is a uh, a work that's actually in the show that the AGO owns. It's it's just uh, you know the neat idea of using mirrors. I, I've used mirrors a lot in, over my life, in my work. And I, I love mirrors because they have this way of, uh, of blotting out information that's behind them but bringing other information on top of the, the, uh, the, the real full scene. And this one I was able to put the trees back into the river like that, right? And I made a lot of light boxes and things that were able to Show uh, these works, and they came again out of all those slides that I did in in '68 or so. Um, and I taught at, I've taught at uh, UBC, Simon Fraser, York University, Emily Carr, Alberta College of Art, and NASCAD and all these different places across Canada and and in Europe a bit. And so that's one of my my ongoing interests is is always teaching and. I'm always interested in helping younger artists with their careers. And I'm not interested in having them be like me. I'm interested in encouraging their own development and so on. Some of the people in Vancouver that were nice to have as students were Roy Arden and Ian Wallace and Stan Douglas and all the different people over the years. This is one of my fun images. It's uh, one of the world's great art critics. And if you don't know her, it's uh, it's Lucy Lepard. And it's just a contemplative picture of her sitting at York in 1968, I believe, and I just took this picture of her. I think it's called Lucy Lepard Waiting. (laughs) And the other image is, um, again, when I surf around, as I've done in all my life, thinking about things, I I wondered one day, could you play Monopoly with real money? Because I like the game, and it's the game of of all of our lives, and we buy houses and everything. So I ended up... uh, talking to bank into lending them money, and then setting it up in, at York. And that's kind of an image of this game. And the, a, as it played out, it was about a five-hour game, and Murray Frum was in this game, and David Silcox, and the banker, and all these people. And Of course, all the artists, or David Silcox was there, they all went out first, and Murray Frum actually won the game. But he, he's a real developer, so he, he has all these strategies that he does. His main strategy was he would help you buy us hotels if he could have landing rights. And that was really smart because then, of course, you can always land everywhere, whatever. So he had these new strategies. And he actually told me this really interesting story that he, uh, when he was at McGill doing his early degrees, they used to play Monopoly, a bunch of his business, and, and uh, I, I can't remember his background, political science or something. But they would have games going on for days, like in their rooms. And there was this one guy that always cheated, right? And he said all his life, he would never do business with this guy. So it was interesting. I just saw Murray from today, which was kind of neat. I haven't seen him for a long, long time. So it was quite nice. Anyways, here we go. So um, there's so many different things. Like when I do a talk, I can't really cover all the stuff that I've been doing, but just to give you a little flavor of things. uh, Along the way, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different exhibitions and things, but anyways, one of the favorite things is is like dealing with food and everything in our lives as we're so much aware every day like drink this coffee, no, don't do it, what about, you know, eating this kind of diet or that diet, but anyways, food has always been a part of our lives and I uh, I'll try to describe these two things, I, I started a restaurant in Vancouver in 75 and 6 and I designed the whole restaurant, it was called Ice Cream and it had food in it that was really kind of fun. It had uh, cubist salads and a group of seven snails and a whole bunch of things, and it was really a really pretty neat place. But, you know, as, as always happens, I had partners and this and that, and it finally only went for a couple of years, right? But in it all, I made a bunch of works because when you analyze restaurants, there's a lot of really curious dialogue and imagery and things that happen, and, you know, and, and, and so I just decided to do artwork about that. And this is myself as an open-faced sandwich. Because I I think that we we should put more food just on our bodies more often, right? And stuff like that, right? So um, there's a whole bunch of images around that. And the other one is actually uh, when I was about 45, I had a heart attack, and I started looking at all about how the food we eat, and I started realizing all the terrible food that we eat. So in 87, I had a show at uh, Banff at the Walter Phillips Gallery, and I, it was all about bad food, all with salt and sugar, and this is called the Wiener Man, it's just all the wieners are pouring out of his body, right? And it, it was a pretty powerful show. It has Wonder Bread and so on, there's a whole bunch of images about that. But you won't see it in the show up here, but hopefully one day these other more kind of ecological pieces will come together. Um... And, and at the end, I'm going to show you two little quick videos that give you an idea, but one of them is about this activity here. I um, In 83, I was able to talk to President Labatt's brewing company into having me as a creative consultant in the company for a year and a half, just as like a burr under the saddle. As somebody who would just be there to be a, 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 an agitator, an, activate, an activist. So I he gave me a vice president position, and I just came every day to work there. And as a result of that, I photographed a lot of their activities, and I, I was the one that worked on their Don't Drink and Drive campaign and, and launched that whole campaign. And so it was, uh, it was a really exciting time, and it really interesting for me to work inside a mega corporation and see how they function and don't function and whatever happens. So um, there, there's a, the little video I show at the end will give you a good idea of that. And then, so what happens when I get to a certain period in my life about uh, around 2003 or 4 You're just thinking all these years. And, one, and because I play with language a lot, like ice cream restaurant, anything company, uh, EEN and this, and, and you'll see a lot of the works are about that. Um, I ended up just realizing, and this interconnectivity with ecology, I finally realized that and was really an important Part of life, And I actually do like graphic arts a lot and I like to be involved in when I design my catalogs and different things. So the, so graphics and fonts and lettering and everything have been really important. So one day it occurred to me that the and, I, that I really liked it, right? And so I thought, well, what do you do with that? So I ended up, um, the best way, as, as artists, what we do is when we think of something we go and we just do it, right? So I said, "Well, how's the best way?" So I better. So I'll go to the government and I'll change my name and I'll add the and to my name, and and I was able to do that. And in Ontario, so I had to change all my passports and health cards and everything, right? And it makes it makes for lots of confusion, but that, but that's nice. I like I like healthy confusion in life because it gives you new ideas. So these are works that have been going on now since 2004 and five. And I, uh, as a, you know, when you do something like that, you have to, you start thinking. So I said, well, why don't I just hand, do a tattoo on my hand? So I tattooed both hands because they have an and in them, and they also hands are kind of neat, like they're always going and they're doing another and, like and picking up this glass and, and putting it down, and so for me. <laughs> For me, it's just another way to live my life and, and have this a part of everything that I'm thinking about. So I go around and I hear people and I'm listening to how many ants I use, and stuff kind of. Right? So anyway, so then I made a big inflated ant, and it's uh, there, and it, it has a five-minute cycle, and it. it deflates, and then it comes back up again, right So it's a big kind of inflated sculpture, about 12 feet high. And then uh, because of the eco aspect to my career, I ended up uh, you know, liking television sets and you know being aware, aware, aware of TV all our lives and recycling and reusing. So one day I thought, well, why don't I just paint landscapes on these TV screens? And then when you turn them on, turn the sound down, keep the snow happening, you've got this activated new landscape in, in, in this new way. And so there's about. Ten of those that are now in the collection of the AGO, and you'll see them upstairs. So this is a kind of shot of them in the Corkin Gallery where, where they were exhibited. And along the way, the next one is actually a major piece upstairs. It's called Zero Emissions. It's again it harkens back to all my background in ecology and zoology because those are all actual, actual taxidermied animals. And I've lived since 88 in Windsor, and if you live in Windsor, you can't escape ever hearing about the auto industry and it's just a part of the fabric of that and Detroit and everything so there's always as we all know in the last I don't know 10-15 years everything's about like zero emissions and how do we protect our environment so one day I thought well why don't I just make some mufflers and I will uh, be able to kind of show this idea so I went to a muffler maker and he was really good to work with and I found these clamps, and they were green, which I liked. And they, it, it's, serendipity is a very important word in life, and it's uh, one of my favorite words. Along with five others, I've, I finally like five amazing words. One is information, wonder, play, and love, and... So those are some of them. But also serendipity is hanging in there. Uh, so anyway, Zero Emissions is this piece that you'll see upstairs, and I, I think it captures the, the spirit of what we're trying to do as a society. And uh, I, I'm actually probably like a global citizen. I, I see the world as my kind of place that I want to say something about because, I mean, we all live in it, and we kind of live in these places that we came from, and Canada's this really amazing melting pot place now. And, uh, and I, I kind of love books, and then I'm wondering I have so many books, what to do with them? And I like shoes, and then I, <laughs> and then if you, if you, you know, when you watch movies, i Fahrenheit 451 is like a favorite movie of mine, and so I wondered. So this this piece is called Fahrenheit 450. It so they won't burn. And um, anyway, so I put them in the shoes, and then it has lots of other meanings. It has. The meanings that all of you people in the audience, just like me, we, we are all actually our own book, if you think about it. Our lives, each one of us have a book, and it's a way to kind of, you know, with the shoes that are walking through life and the books itself, it gives you this whole way to uh, maybe appreciate why it's important that we have books and knowledge and how we're, how we're going to keep it. The libraries are wondering what we're going to do. And so the other thing one day occurred to me, I've taught all these years, and I, I love the idea of lectures. And then if you think back in history about um, Socrates walking around the, the Parthenon, and then you, I started wondering, well, maybe the first lecture they ever had, they sat on some rocks somewhere near there to talk about things, and, and as they're walking as well. But I thought, well, I'll just do a, a lecture with about 48 to 50 chairs, and they'll all wear shoes. So they each wear shoes, and this whole thing is just called lecture. So that's what that piece... So those are big installation pieces that hopefully one day will come together as a show like that. And one of the other uh, really important projects that I did, which tied together a lot of all my career, and I I worked with a really amazing organization in Toronto. It's called Number Nine, and it's for contemporary art and and the environment, run by a fellow named... Andrew davies, and what 's important about this for me was Andrew came to me and he said ian i 'm going to do this project that involves a school system in Toronto and this was uh, in two thousand and ten during April and I think April May, so it went to about twenty different schools and all the libraries and this van we created uh, has all my artwork that talks about ecological problems and for I think it's for fourth and fifth grade students. And it went actually to all the school grounds itself and parked there all day long. And the kids could come out and look at it and talk about it. And the World Wildlife Society was so excited, they decided they'd give every kid a a special animal that they could protect and use. So for me, it was a combination of bringing together all these ideas that I'd had over all the years. And so it was was one of my better and most special projects that I'd done. And I'm going to show you a quick little tape that went on uh, CBC uh, about a, a couple of years ago. Anyways, that's the, um, the gist of how the wagon, it had a handle that went on top, so it gave the idea of a box that you could carry away your ideas with. Just photographs, like I try to photograph everywhere, and uh, now it's easier to photograph in stores. It wasn't so a while ago, they thought you were spying or something, Right. But now you just have to say, well, I think my wife might like this thing or something, right? And so, uh, anyways, I photograph in stores. It depends on what I, you know, it, each of us has our own way that we see and that we, we see the, the society that we walk through. And that's why I think everybody enjoys taking pictures. And there I am, my connection's going. Okay, so here's a couple other things. I've always been interested in fashion, and, and I used to make all this inflated clothing and stuff. And... And this is a picture of Louise and I in a recent video. It's on YouTube. It's waiting for music, but if you you ever see it. What it is one day, Louise and I were talking, we figured out that if you have to dress really quickly, all you need are three shirts. And so you you just like you tie one around this way, tie one around that way, and you wear one, and you're totally dressed. So it's this three-shirt recycling uh, way to live, right? And so that's kind of, you'll see the little video if you look it up. So we're always trying to have some fun like that, right? This is a newer piece of mine I'm pretty excited about. It. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I actually have a show right now at Glenbow with uh, Brutinsky and Laurie Anderson and the three of us, and it's really a pretty neat exhibition. But this piece, I'm really excited about it. It's actually called Shelf Life. And it's a hundred and something of these tote boxes. And that's kind of like where our lives are at this point in history. So I, I love very minimal things, too. It's a part of my background probably from Mirandi and just th- liking things that are quite simple and minimal like that. And then recently, again playing with language, this occurred to me one day. I, I was looking at the word and, and I said, oh my gosh, it's actually DNA at the same time, right? So I made this work which goes like that, and I love it because the and and the DNA... I'm pretending now, and I really think it is, I think it's the DNA of our language. Because if you don't have ands, and all our thoughts and ideas, I just, they aren't connected anymore. They're just like floating around. So this work is, it works on both ways. You walk around, and they're totally interconnected. And so I've been doing some T-shirts and things like that. And I don't know if you know, I, I've, I've been working for three years, and I now I trademark the and in Canada. I worked with some lawyers, and it's taken two or three years, and I have the and as a trademark, so I can, I can use it in a lot of different ways. And so you'll be seeing things happening, I hope. Uh, as Jillian mentioned, uh, I'm working with this young fellow named Adam Lauder, and we're, I'm excited, and he's really excited because he's, he's a librarian, historian, and he has the first endowed library chair in Canada at York, and his project is to do my life as an electronic resume so it's called Resin E, not Resin A. And so, so what we're doing is basically making it a part of the social media structure and a, a part of an educational new stance and trying to tie it in to the new way that we're working with, with media and social structures. So it's scanning everything. Basically, it's to it's scan my life and all my books and everything and try and put it in and use it as a learning center and for people to come in and leave articles or write about what, whatever they want. So you'll be able to check that out over there. It's, it's been going for a year and a half now. And then I'm working with a bunch of people on a graphic, graphic novel type of things. And this is me as an actual end. at this point here. So, Kathleen. So I'm just going to stop for a second here and show you some videos that will give you a little sensibility about the time at Labatt's and the time at, uh, with the Eco Art Band. So bear with us while we get it all. T- oh, here we go. That's cool. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: This was done in. Suppose
4: you were the president of one of the largest breweries in North America, and suppose you went looking for some new business ideas. After you would checked all the way up the corporate ladder, where would you go next? Well, the president of Labatt's decided he had the answer. He hired an artist. Why an artist? Well, why not? The man he hired was conceptual artist Ian Baxter. During a casual dinner conversation, Baxter told Sidney Olin, Labatt's president, about his interest in corporate business, and along the way, revealed that he had a thought process not quite like anyone else's. Olin was intrigued. With his bicycle clips, tweedy look, and office artifacts, Baxter's not what you'd expect in the corporate executive mold. He once put his kids in a box and held an art gallery showing of them, but it seemed that he might be the one to give a new slant to the corporate line of thought. How did this job come about for you?
5: Well, I met Sid Olin at a dinner party about a year and a half ago, and I, we were talking. I've always wanted to have the challenge of working in a major corporation, so I just said to him, why don't you hire a fellow like me and have a person in here? So he said, okay, we'll, we'll take it on and do it. So it finally happened.
4: Some might consider Sidney Olin's move as temporary business insanity, but he explains his plan. And
5: I had been thinking of ways for some time to inject... Some lateral thinking, whatever buzzwords you want to use, some different types of thinking as opposed to formal logical thought into the, our business process with a view to breaking new ground, opening up new ideas, that kind of thing. And uh, we started talking about it, and I wondered if having a guy with, let's say, a thought process, quite unlike others, around for a good deal of the time might not, not only that he would bring ideas perhaps into the company, but that of being around him might generate new ideas in other people.
4: How would you define your role?
5: Well, the role is more as, as a catalyst. and It's just uh, nuancing questions and people coming in and saying, hey, Ian, here's something, uh, look at this, and what do you think about that? So it's, it's, it's a processing situation. And I find that best for me because I'm, I'm somebody that likes to float around and talk to a lot of different people. So it took a while because people were a little uh, uneasy at first, but as they got to know me, they felt good about it and they'd start talking to me
4: one tangible result of those informal conversations with baxter is labatt's please don't drink and drive campaign it's quite a departure from the usual approach to ads and if successful may open the door for more off-the-wall consultants who haven't come up through the ranks in england a trend has started some companies hire people like monty python's john cleese to pump some creative insanity into their business
3: please don't drink and drive We we spoke
4: with radio personality and and business business analyst analyst, Jerry White, who wholeheartedly supports this move to non-traditional resources.
3: Is it it valid?
4: Does he have a position within a corporation? Is he doing some good for Labasse?
3: I think it's an immensely powerful concept for the company. I think they're doing themselves a lot of good having a person like that. Organizations become very stifled and bureaucratic and totally lacking in innovation after a while and nobody's prepared to take a risk. So you bring in a loony or an iconoclast, a troublemaker, and he acts like a a, a catalyst. He gets everybody excited, and they have to come up with innovative ideas, and it won't work for a long period of time. It probably will only work for a year, but still, it's gonna have a very positive impact on that company, and I think it's working.
4: Does he come in as a threat to force people to produce?
3: Well, he forces them to break the mold, they can't just be yes men, they can't just be the organizational man and whatever, they've got to come up with brilliant new ideas because this guy is around them, and maybe it's a threat, maybe it's just a motivator, but whatever it does, it seems to work.
4: Is this really a marriage of business and art?
3: Well, I think there's a great deal of art already in business, except most of us don't understand it or don't notice it around us. There's tremendous creativity and and craftsmanship in so much of what is done. Uh, I think he's just forcing them to recognize it in a more tangible way. Uh, They're going to become much more uh, conscious of the exciting parts of their business because of a person like him being around them. And I think they'll be much more innovative because, uh, you know, an artist tends to bring out the artists in all of us. You know, we all want to be like the artists because they have such a unique element and character to them.
4: Do you think that Sidney Olin showed a lot of foresight in hiring Ian Baxter?
3: Well, I think uh, the Olin family has had a long history of being sort of innovative entrepreneurial yahoos in Canadian business. Uh, I think that uh, this opportunity was the type of thing that he would go for, and I think anybody who's worked for Labatt's or worked for Mr. Olin know that he's a guy that takes the chance. And that's one of the reasons why the company has performed so well over the past few years with his leadership.
4: Hiring an artist was a risk for Labatt's, and it's too soon to tell if it's a success story worth repeating. Up to now, both sides seem pleased that the status quo is being shaken up. So far, Ian Baxter's appetite for new ideas and experiences keeps both the executive and the artist in him satisfied. Is that the Golden Gate
5: Bridge? I guess I've been called a corporate iconoclast. That word has a kind of a nasty thing, saying it's a breaker of image, but I think it's a maker of new images. So I I would like to think that it's a, it's a a new viable process and a new way that people can, uh, can, em- can employ people with ideas like myself and dancers and musicians
3: and poets and I, I hope that that's going to happen I-, I feel it will.
4: And Jerry White thinks it will too. Uh, what is Ian's biggest contribution?
3: His biggest contribution is the innovative approach to thinking. And he stimulates new ideas, he stimulates creativity, and the marketplace today is demanding innovation. Real innovation. You can't just put a label on a product and say oh new God, improved. No. It's got to be a major step forward. And he's the type of person that can motivate the people around him to do that. I think that's his major role.
2: Okay, we're just going to show you one more about this eco-art band, and then we'll take some questions. And um, you can't get out of the room unless you ask a question. No, I'm just kidding
6: and we're going to make handscapes. So you're going to
0: use... We're here at Willow Park Elementary School with the Ian Baxter and Eco Art Van. This is the artist, this is Ian Baxter.
5: Yeah, that's
2: a real ra- You've seen a raccoon? That's a raccoon. That's a- yeah. I have a degree in zoology back way back in the 50s, and uh, working with animals and habitats and everything has been an ongoing concern all these years. In, in this particular work, we've, they're in distilled water and they look very humorous at the same time. There's a very sad quality to it because it's, that's maybe how we will really look at the animals in our, in our world. Really,
0: this is about stimulating their imagination, tapping into their curiosity, and getting them excited both about art, but also about animal preservation.
6: Okay, guys, so what's um, what's the title of the piece? Extinction. extinction. And then what's on
7: the end of the, that word, extinction? Question mark. Okay, and then why do you think Ian Baxter ran out of the question mark? Just because uh, they're not extinct, because not extinct yet but
0: when, maybe in the future, they might be extinct. We particularly wanted to deal with the Grade 4 class because with the Toronto District School Board curriculum, they're working on animal habitat. So we wanted to tie in to what the teachers were already working with their students on.
8: thank you for adopting me. You're welcome. So
6: animal habitat, right, when artists do uh, pictures or depictions of animal habitat, Do you know what this is called? It's called a a landscape. We're going to do some wordplay. We're going to change the L to an H, and we're going to make handscapes. So you're going to use your hands. You're going to first put it in on your page, and your hand is going to represent you as connected to your animal's habitat and caring for your animal's habitat. Are you thinking about what your hands are going to represent?
2: About a couple of years ago, I did a piece called Our World Needs a Green Sweep. We're calling the kids that grew out of this uh, the green sweepers, because we really need this kind of generation to be the ones that really make the greenness happen through our whole world.
0: What do you think?
2: Okay, bring
7: your arms down. Okay. Are you ready?
0: So we are trying to introduce the students to the idea that they can actually play a role in preserving animal habitat. What's,
7: what's your green pledge? Oh, pledge I never eat meat anymore. Excellent. Okay. Be down, Perfect. And do you have a green pledge?
0: Yep. Oh, um,
7: I promise Sorry. when I grow up, I will save carapace. Awesome. Okay, smiling at the camera. Excellent. Good job.
0: Looking here at my camera. Excellent. Not to uh, drive cars a lot because pollution spreads around.
7: One more big smile.
6: Perfect.
0: We want to stimulate these kids. We want to turn them on to art. Some of those kids out there are really creative minds just waiting to have an opportunity to explode. And that's what we want to capture. My animal is a snow leopard and one inspired me was hunting. So I put no hunting. This is a picture of the mountains when global romance happening, the mountains are kind of falling apart and the ice is breaking.
8: This is a blue shark. The pollution is pouring down on him so he doesn't have nowhere to go and he'll just die in the process. So we need to help him and we need to don't let him extinct. Please, help him.
2: The, the total package of the eco art Van was um, something that I was really excited about and then to top it off, I realized that it was really important to put a handle on top. And so it has a little handle, so the handle kind of sums up this whole thing. You can carry all these ideas with you and go out into society and do something. And so you'll notice that it has this handle. So it's, it's a container to carry their, their ideas with them into the future. And I would just like to say, as the Ant Man, thank you for. Oh, we got this. Is what technology does. Is it up? Oh, there we go. There it is. It's my thing as the Ant Man, saying thank you for coming to this, and I hope you have some questions, and let's let it roll. That'll be
1: good. So we have two handheld lights.
2: Standing in my swimming pool because I needed to uh, cool off or something. But, uh, anyways,
1: we have two mics. So if you have a question, just put your hand and we'll we'll bring the mic to you. We're going to podcast this talk, so it's good to capture the questions as well as the answers. Well, perhaps while everybody is thinking of a question, I want to say you're still influencing business. We we do a lot of seminars. We have seminar rooms that businesses rent out, and we had uh, Ipsos Reed here last week, and they wanted tours of the gallery. So the group I was working with were working on branding, and I took them up to your exhibition. Oh, we ready? had a great. We spent an hour up there. It was wonderful. Oh so. uh-huh,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, you're going to you're going to grab the mic. Okay.
3: Oh, okay. I guess I'm on. So this is a whimsical little question, but maybe somewhat in line with your presentation. Mm -hmm. But when I first saw the open-faced sandwich, I saw it backwards and
2: it looked like a goya painting with the mouth being one eye and the other eye covered in this terrible manner. And then only later did I shift around to see you as you actually
3: were. I don't know if anyone's noticed that before. No, but no I,
2: I like your interpretation. Well. It's very <laughs> surreal. That's, <good>. all <laughs> right, thanks. Thanks.
3: That's all I had to say.
6: <laughs> I was just wondering if you could revisit what you're saying about being a maximal maximalist and, and that that ties in with your ecological background?
2: Well, just that uh, I guess everything that I, I'm involved with, it seems to, you know, it, it resonates and then it's kind of vibrating, but I never know where, where the ideas are going to come from. So it, it can happen in a number of different ways. So it's involved with not a strictly visual way. It's, it could be a, a, like a whole performance piece or something, right? So I, t- I tend to work in a number of different ways. Over the years, so I just kind of like the idea of saying it's more maximally oriented than just kind of minimally structured And it's kind of my my scoping is is looking like that. I, I tend to like to say that I surf information If I, I actually can't surf, really, in water. I used to be a good skier, but I never did water skiing But if, when you think about it, all the information that we deal with, it's kind of like this giant ocean that we're in, right? hand. And so I like to feel like I'm surfing and some if I had unlimited funds, I would actually have um, all like maybe 300 magazines come to my house a month. If I could, because I really I just go to newsstands and I just like look through all these different ones, because for me, there's all these ideas that start happening. You know, the magazine dwell and wet and you name it, the, the and fashion and whatever. I'm just excited and gardening. I don't I don't care. I just like it all. Right, so that's kind of the more maximal thing. I think I'm next. Actually. Oh, okay.
8: This is actually uh, not really a question, but it's an observation. I think your work is really brilliant, and uh, oh, I was thinking that your and sign mm-hmm. has kind of a multi-layered meaning because it kind of looks like a truncated dollar sign or a euro symbol, and it also looks like an anchor. Yeah, yes. and it also kind of looks like it's sort of playfully trying to be like. It's like a synthesis, it's like a miniaturization of language, and so it's become like the ultimate symbol, so it's, it's become both you and a symbol that's now become iconic, which I think is really wonderful. So,
2: yeah, well, I think I, so
8: as, as, as <laughs> since you've now <laughs> included it in your actual name, yes. do you sort of see it as this thing that's now become so prevalent in your life that it's become this inescapable?
2: Yeah, and I like that Sy- symbol
8: of you because I can see it on your hat there, and I yes. now I'm now seeing that it's as if you invented the symbol.
2: Is my point? Kind of. Well, yeah. I, as artists, we're always looking for new uh, yeah. new things that we'd like to tie down, and it's it's for me actually. Well, I, I I'm just about ready to complete a work now that involves how many ands I use in a in a year. I'm, I'm I've been working on you know how many I use daily. It depends how much you talk and that, right? But so i'm getting a rough idea and then i I've, I've been making a big pile of these ads because i like the idea that we we use it a lot and i'm i'm very tuned into it and i don't know i just came to it because i like uh, because of the way i work as an artist i guess and this ecology concept and and the word informa- and, and information strategies and things so it's kind of like branding yourself i mean we're all kind of branding ourselves in a certain way about what we do but i'm just going a little bit further with it, I like I like playing with it basically.
3: The, yeah. the um, social message in your in your work is quite powerful. But do you see yourself as delivering a political message through much uh, of you? As delivering a political message as well? well.
2: Kind of. I I ver- you know I did a major piece with Louise about uh, apartheid when it was happening. We want I wanted to say something about that, and so we did a. An actual piece about, but it, it the, there's political overtones in it a lot, and um, it's not something like this burning thing, but it's subtly in there sometimes in some ways and, and and
3: getting stronger it could
2: be it could be coming stronger. I wish we could get Mr. Harper to realize i i don't know no politician seems to realize that. In this nation of Canada, if you want to go down in, in history as this incredible ra- nation, you have to find ways to give lots of money to culture because all anybody remembers in the end is what you made as art as artists and if we If you could ever see that, you should subtly find ways to dump money into everything I mean dance and poetry I mean why do we know the civilizations like the Romans and the Greeks because all that stuff happened? So if I were a politician somewhere, I'd be finding ways to shoot money to all the artists in our country. Yeah, yeah. hi.
5: Uh, I hope I'm not imagining this, but, uh, and speaking of minimalism, uh, maximalism, and landscapes, <laughs> I recall some of your work probably during the anything company era. Mm-hmm. You had done landscapes where you would drive and find a... Very ex- expanses of land and put up posts. Yes, sometimes right. miles apart, and that would be your painting. Uh, yes. Well, it
2: yeah, you're right. that, that's upstairs. at one of those works where the gallery owns it here. Oh, okay. And, and, and well, it's actually well, it, you know, as we all know, we I, I've actually been trying to figure out we probably spend maybe two or three years sitting in our cars in our lifetime if you think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and all that vision is out of these windows, right? Mm-hmm. And so. You know, how we go by places with our partners or, or friends, and we say, oh, that's a really beautiful landscape or something. So I wanted to define it. So it does say start viewing and, and then stop viewing.
5: Are they still there in certain locations? Well, if, they,
2: if there was a, pr- a more permanent one, it would be good to be there. But I, I actually wonder why real estate agents don't use that more. <laughs> this way.
1: Can you pass that mic to the woman in the red dress behind you? Do you still have a question? Yeah.
9: Hi, I was just wondering, I haven't seen your animal preserve at the National Gallery, I'd love, gallery. I'd love to. Um, was that sort of um, the beginning of your thinking of doing the eco-art van? Could you say a little bit more about what, you're, what you were trying to get across? With well, the,
2: in, in the eco-art van, which uh, Andrew's over there, he can talk about it. He, he invited me to, because of my background in all these different works, so... I tried to put a bit of, of all the different little attitudes that I've been having. And, of course, that big piece at the National Gallery, which I wish was here, it's really So a, do I. I was hoping it would be it. And so that's why I'm hoping one day maybe there will be a whole big show, which is just about all the ecology things that I've been doing. But it, it definitely was one of the major kind of essences for that van. But Andrew could say a little bit. He knows a lot of, once he gets a mic for a sec.
1: Wait,
0: wait! I'm coming. Um, so my name is Andrew Davies. I run number nine, and we had this idea of um, having this mobile van. And we didn't, you know, we we talked to different artists, and I became aware of Ian's work because of his installation uh, at Jane's Gallery, and. Um, We went to Ian. It was such a pleasure to work with Ian. He's like the most amazing uh, educator, and he's just an amazing collaborator. And he just wanted, you know, we wanted to be able to introduce kids in a really accessible way to his work. And so the van was just like a sort of mini-museum and uh, the animal pre- preserves, I agree. I would love to see them in the show upstairs, and 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 maybe some someday they will come to the AGO. But there these, there's one of these. Uh, uh, they're a great example of Ian's work and how accessible it is. I mean, they're they're stuffed animals, so children will obviously. Be drawn to them, but you know there there are a lot of messages w- within within the uh, works themselves, and it it just starts a conversation. And he, he, as Ian says, he's the An Man; he's an amazing catalyst. And so he was just such a fantastic artist to to work on this project. I think. Well, the
2: exciting thing for me, uh, Andrew, was seeing that van on the school grounds all day, because I mean, kids that weren't even in that class were coming there, right? Yeah, they, they loved it. yeah it was oh, pretty. Yeah, other cities are interested in it going somewhere, so maybe it'll...
1: We have one here first. Thank
6: you. It seems like you're more interested in the process of making art than the finished product. Will you... Describe, say, in, for example, in Fahrenheit 450, how you conceive it from the time you think about it, whether it's flipping through magazines or where it comes from,
9: mm-hmm.
6: to the time you finish it, which is whether it's buying the shoes and the books and cementing them in and creating the um, infinity sign. So how that process works
9: from the beginning of it to the end.
2: Well, I, I have to confess, I kind of have a shoe fetish. Myself, so I have all these shoes and it, and you know they're sitting around you're wondering about them but uh, but but I, I do love the process, but also the finished product is 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 um, kind of the beautiful end that happens out of all that but uh, the shoes just uh, you know I had them on, and i've I've got, I've got too many books, and I didn't know what to do with them all and then one day it occurred to me that they fit in shoes like kind of right, and so I, and then I cemented them in. And some of them, and in some of them, they had like foam and stuff. But it, it's just a fun process as it girl's, And you try one or two, and then you say, "Well, why don't I have, uh, you know, a hundred of them or two hundred of them, right?" And and I, I, the first one I really did was the infinity symbol, because I like the idea that as as we go through life, it's just this infinity thing. And uh, and so the shoes are all walking, and they all are carrying our uh, a story, right? And the stories are each of us too, at the same time. Um, so um, i'm just i 'm um, a guy that likes to play in a very serious way with everything kind of right and that's, so that 's the process that happens i, I, if I you know it 's just sometimes you can 't get around to making all the stuff that you think about, but I like the idea of of tumbling these processes in my brain and then i I actually go around saying my studio is actually in my head that 's where my studio is, and then you just sometimes you just go to a muffler shop and make it or something right.
7: Hi. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you uh, for for coming, and because listening to you has made my mind just start kind of going off in different directions. Oh, cool. Um, and I work in advertising, yes. and uh, sometimes not too often, but sometimes what I uh, what I see we produce, I do think is art, um, and yes, I like okay. that idea of art being accessible and and um, and something that you know. Something that uh, that we can make, and we—it's not just certain people. We can all have, um, you know, we could all recognize what mm-hmm. is art and and what we produce something that's original and 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 has what to say. And um, also, you just—you know—you're just talking about what would you do if you were president? Um, companies or or the government pump pumps a lot of money into into ensuring industry continues in our country, um, and maybe giving. Uh, companies, or you know, um, making them acknowledge that what they produce can also be art, and giving them pride, um, and and maybe having the government support different industries. That is a way, you know, our culture, what we produce as art, and what we consider art. It's a, you know, it 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 can change. Sometimes it's a really cool automobile. Sometimes it's maybe a. Something that happens online and and, and it's mm-hmm. a way for people to interact with,
2: yeah. What brands bring, or yeah. whatever you're bringing up something really interesting is uh, and I've always felt we, we were kind of missing the boat on not not involving uh, better I don't know schooling or something about design like we have to get design as a major infusion through our country and all the stuff we're doing because we know how we love Italian design and Swedish and like why can't we we got to have a Canadian design of something like and so hopefully i don't know if that's happening yet but that's where major funding should be going into encouraging cuz we're making all these different products and things so hopefully that'll happen oh, oh i'm seeing a
6: hand there and a okay hi um, i guess i see you very differently now that I oh, did sorry. before. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I okay. see you differently in, in what you said. Where were you? I don't know. About advertising. And mm-hmm. I see you largely as an advertising person in addition to an artist. Mm-hmm. So it's advertising without the N in the middle. And um, <laughs> my question is, has being an artist given you more room to develop your ideas and more freedom and yes. um, have you ever thought of at, at more leaner times of going into advertising?
2: Well, it's definitely please been please. the most amazing career for me because it, I, I think being an artist, and I mean that in all the levels of, of artists, in theater, music, whatever, it allows you this kind of ultimate freedom to be to be about your ideas, and it's not like going to in in some workplace like so. The workplace for me is the, is the world and everything. But uh, yes, I'm I'm available for anybody who wants to tap me in terms of thoughts because that's kind of what I'm about is thinking and all that. And uh, no, it's been. I, I think the arts are, are just an amazing area that we uh, spend. And the reason why I'm so involved in education and, and about helping. People's, I, if I could become this artist, I never expected to be at all, but it's just I like to encourage other people to see if that's inside of them or something. And I think our, the age we're in now, and, and with social media, it's bringing people out, being more creative, using this technology. The only thing is we've got to get a balance about it, not that we, like we have to pull those things out and hear the birds and not just go around listening to other music all the time. So it's important to kind of have a balance in your life about stuff.
5: Yeah.
9: Um, I just came back from a conference about elephants in the world, and wow. uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, more elephants have been killed in Africa in the last uh, than in, in the last 23 years. The demand from China, for example, is so huge Jeez. for the ivory, and I, so I, why I'm mentioning this is you talked early, you know, early on in your talk about Far Eastern philosophy about uh, balance in, in nature and. Uh, a harmony. Uh, is. Do you think there's a way to go somehow that the some of those countries can go back to some of their the religious original, beliefs and yeah. their philosophy? Because in between the Japanese killing the whales and right. the elephants are totally at risk. Um, they are key, really, and that would be an incredible thing. It's like
2: an ma- amazing thing, like a Zen koan, to wake them up to realize what what they had from their past that should feed their future now about how they should think. You're, you're right. That, that would be really healthy. Um, maybe they should... I mean, I mean, I know plastic is trying to become... Bio, we're trying to work on biodegradable plastic. Maybe if we could just get them to see that you could actually have a plastic ivory instead of a real ivory and act like a simulation thing. Could be a way to not kill the elephant so much.
6: I have a. um, Am I next or she? Oh, okay. okay, Thank you. Um, I'm I'm interested in using animal bodies as art, as as are you. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen the uh, exhibition of preserved animals at the at the National Art Gallery, but uh, I have, you know, seen the um, Zero Emissions display. And also, I was interested in the Eco Art Van because you have them in the van, the little stuffed. Mostly plush animals in jars, I guess, the, the, to play on the idea of preservation, right? Which I guess is sort right, of... Right, and part the of,
2: idea that they're like, this might be the only way that we've we distilled Right, see them and that shelf. you
6: protect them in some way by the, preserving them. Is it, is well, they're it sort in, they're of connected in to that?
2: Distilled water is what they're just in. Right. And they, but,
6: but to sort of represent them as being preserved in yes, the sense of protected?
2: That as well as like, that might be the only way, like, absurdly, if we went somewhere and say, oh, these were the animals we used to have. As they, they'd just be in jars, like in in the formaldehyde that we saw in in, uh, in zoology labs or something.
6: Yeah, I just wondered if that connected to the kind of vacuum bag, the bagged art as the well, where place? you, you somehow—I mean, I'm not trying to well, psychoanalyze the place, you, but, uh, well, but you know, I, the idea that you 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 seem to want to protecting yeah, in by the, encasing them.
2: Well the bag place became like really cuz I I love the idea of absurdity in our lives like if you just do something and so I th- I started thinking about bagging something and then I said well why don't we just bag a whole house like and so that's why the coffee and the toaster and there was a television set that everything in there was bagged the bed and the books and the and we had a hamburger and everything was on the counter but it it it, it, it was kind of like taking it to the nth degree but you're right, I, I tend to want to protect things like that. And, and preserve them, make them yeah. kind of immortal. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Cool.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Mr. Harper. Where is the lobby group for artists, Arts for Job Creation? There are actually a lot of jobs possibility in art. Oh, oh yeah. And I think Cirque du Soleil actually had some startup money. And if we would have, you know, if we would consider the art... As actually job creation, no. and where's the lobby? Because why artists are not lobbying the government?
2: I know, because it, it's a major area of our lives, and uh, you're right. That would be that would be very enlightening to do that. To do that. Oh, okay.
0: I'm a huge fan of your work, um, oh. and I'm just wondering when you look back over your career, you've Been experimenting and done so many different things. Do you have a particular body of work that you feel a particular attachment to, special sentimental attachment to that, you know, still excites you when you when you reflect back over your life?
2: Um, Well, I really um, a lot of well, there's some real earlier eco works that you haven't like big. There's a skewered piece with all the animals on a skewer. I love that. I yeah, love that. and uh, yeah. there's another one that you've probably never seen. It's called Shipped Out, and it's a thousand stuffed animals in a big bale. It's they're 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 all baled up.
0: Was that at the Corkin Gallery at one point? No, I don't no. think
2: it's ever been shown. The, the bale. We that. Did you the whole big bale once? Oh yeah, yeah. And then and then there's some other pieces around. I'm hoping one day to get all those guys out there. But I'm actually working on a bunch of new pieces now that are about Animals again, and uh, so um, no. Well, I I don't know, and I I like looking back at my early watercolors. I, I I saw them all, some of them now, and there there's a lot more that are in that period. But I, I guess I I tend to like the different. I mean, I've gone through a lot of different stages, and I kind of like them all for a little reasons, right? So. It's like liking all your kids.
0: <laughs> well, I have another question that's connected to that. Sure. Um, again, being so experimental, is there a body of work that terrified you, that you thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm putting this out there, you know, that it felt very um, risky?
2: Well, I, I am working on some works, uh, which I, I, I think sh- they're still lifes, but they're about uh, the, very, the, the very bad... Because uh, I watch the news a lot, and there's, these, there's certain banned... Uh, Things that we buy, like creams and stuff. So, I'm going to just do these still lifes about, about uh, dangerous materials. So, they're kind of like dangerous still lifes. And so, I'm always looking at these different ways to kind of just say these little political and, and um, ecological works. Those are some that are about that. And um, I'm actually working on a personal piece. I've, I've been talking about it for a number of years and I haven't done it. But what I did go through, this is again how my work comes off of my life. I did a quadruple bypass in um, two thousand and one, which is probably why i 'm here and um and and the and the when I went to the doctor, I did it in Toronto. I got smart i didn 't do it in Windsor. I decided to do it in Toronto, and I came to the doctor and I gave him a book of my sculpture and stuff because I thought he might do a really good job <laughs> for this artist anyways um and so, and he was this neat guy, his name's uh, Dr. Kuzimano, a younger kind of surgeon, and he, I, I actually, it was quite neat, he decided to do me off pump, so I don't know if, you, if you've heard about that, like in other words, you don't go through the heart-lung machine, they, they decide to do it on your beating heart, and so I, I agreed to do that, because it's, the heart-lung thing can be a whole other deal it can do to you, right? But it's all there if you need it. Anyways, he, he does all this thing, and then... Um, and Louise is taking care of me in the after uh, after unit but what happened is a day or two later he comes to me and he says i got something that no one else has ever had and i'm wondering, what's this right and he says well in the middle of your operation i took pictures of your heart and he and he said you can have them and so i'm i've been just saying i'm going to make i'm going to make this internal self portrait which is a picture of my heart in a light box with with an LED that explains his name and, the, and some of the process and all that stuff. So've got I've, I've been talking about it now for 10 years, but I've got to make it because I'm, I'm thinking about how, to, how it's going to look and so on. So it's actually a heart, but it'll just be my heart in there, right? And so anyways, those are the fun things that one of the ones that's tumbling around for a while. <laughs> so so I better do it. <laughs> but that's how stuff happens out of my life and whatever's going on like that.
7: Uh, Ian, I just have a yeah. question What's, what was the ins- well, I have a couple questions actually. What was the inspiration behind your work beauty spots
2: the, the, which one the
5: beauty spots
2: oh, the beauty spots well again, uh, <laughs> you know as you go through life i mean we've we 've all fantasized by going to cities and we 've gone to cities, and then there 's always these corny things where they say well here 's the beauty spots of Barcelona if you want to take pictures or something so i 'm always like so i 'm hearing that word, the beauty spots, and then I know when you as a male, you look at lots of female bodies and pictures and whatever, right? We all, we all do. And so, you know, there was Marilyn Monroe, and then if if a lady had a spot on their face, you call it a beauty spot, right? So I I just like how words go like that. So then I decided I would shoot the beauty spots of Paris. I had to, I lucked out and had the Canada Council apartment in Paris back in, I think it was eighty one or something. And so there I went around. I shot with Polaroid all those in the little mirror so it's a little round spot again of the, of the beauty spot of Paris. And then I thought about finding a model, and luckily this, this woman that I found in Amsterdam, I was able to use that big camera. She had a number of moles all, all over her body. So, I, do, so I, just, I just had her lie down, and I'd stick the Polaroid on different places. So that's why they all look like that. Kind of. and so, so I like the layering that happens of the actual scene, the, the history of why we call blemishes beauty spots and stuff. So, yeah. I don't that if that... Get, get? Yeah,
7: no, that's fine. Thank you. And I have another question, not related to that, but mm-hmm. you've had two, you know, sort of certainly serious life-altering, you know... Mm-hmm.
2: Um, events.
7: Events yeah. in your life. Yes. Had you had not had... That serious accident when you were young, and then of course you know this that you just talked about Mm -hmm. your quadruple bypass. Do you think your life would have taken a different direction? Yeah, and and what have you ever thought about that?
2: Well, I think we kind of all of us think a little bit about these various twists and turns that we have in our lives, and um, yeah, it it would have changed totally because I would have had a different way of, especially the one when I was 18. That that was a a major one. Because then I didn't go into sports so much anymore and stuff. And although I, uh, it took me quite a few years to. I used to do tumbling and everything too. It took quite a few years to do another like forward roll. Right? Once you broke your neck, I was a lucky guy because my neck, it broke the process, but it it didn't go all the way, or i have been a quadriplegic by now. So, they're just event. I mean, we've all maybe all you guys have had little events like that in different ways. Yeah.
6: Hi, I think your work's really optimistic and positive. And I was wondering what you see as the future of using technology and all the social networking and stuff in
9: in your work.
2: Yeah, well, I'm really excited working with Adam Lauder and that whole thing that I was mentioning to you. The the, the resiny is really because we don't we all don't know where it's going to go. And he's very interested in finding a template that could help for other. I mean, the the main art world for people's biographies or whatever. So, yeah, I'm just very excited about it. I'm learning every day about all that. And it's, uh, but the main thing I think we have to all do is learn how to balance all that material. Because like, we, we get so wired in, and you can spend hours on your Facebook and all those things, but you also have to go back into nature and like, try to balance out all that, because it will actually enhance how your answers are going to be and whatever, I think it's important, that aspect.
1: Ian, have you talked about creative compost? I don't think he have. Well, I has meant,
2: well, I kind of li- live in a creative compost. My my house is a bit compost y or <laughs> whatever word we want to use. Yeah, because I just have a lot of stuff around, and what what I enjoy about it is it's not it's it's a healthy chaos, kind of. I like to call it. Uh, it's a little bit like hoarding, but <laughs> I'm I'm always amazed. Like when they do these hoarding shows, they don't ever show like a cultural person that's hoarding, right? Or an antique guy or something. They always have like the most terrible ones, but anyways, anyway. So what I really enjoy is when you go back into these areas and you're digging down through. You see these things that you were writing like a long time ago, and they spark new ideas. And so that's why I've been calling it a a creative compost. Is basically how my life goes, anyways, and maybe some of yours does too.
1: But you were saying, you know, sometimes you would you would sort of fork over your compost so mm-hmm. it might be stuff that you've had for years and years and years and you know you'll find new uses oh, for it, yeah. make oh, new connections true. or something you forgot
2: about like oh I, I don't remember i made that thing
1: what i'm really waiting for is to see what you do with the parking meters you've just acquired.
2: yeah well i yeah i did at at uh, windsor they got rid of a bunch of parking meters uh, must have been 20 years ago and I, I i don't know if you want to say it's foolish but i bought 60 of them right and they're still sitting outside but I'm beginning to I think I find the way to do them I'm going to I'm finding a certain cart that they're all just going to sit on and they then they make their own message kind of right and so they'll be tied up or something
1: I'm not sure yet So Louise how do you feel about all these parking meters that have come into your life? I'm being very quiet <laughs> I don't have much of a choice <laughs> One more question. I think you can get there more easily than I, Kathleen. What, what are you trying to if we could wait, so we can record the question too, please.
9: Sorry. Sorry. What are you trying to accomplish with the trademarking of the answer? What What are the implications uh, of
2: that? It's just uh, you know, for me as a as a person, I I just like playing with language. That's one of the things I've always done, and then I, I'm finding new ways to make works out of it. And I'm starting to do a whole series of works that have me just standing with, like, a lawnmower. It says, Ian Baxter and lawnmower. <laughs> and so I'm just connecting things all the time. So I don't know, for, for as an artist, it's exciting to have this kind of, it's like another kind of paint to work with, right?
9: But I don't understand the trademark part to it. I well, mean, another I'm, artist could use an ant sign or... Or no anymore,
2: yeah. like I don't... Yeah, no, but that, I like that confusion, that's all. Uh, like, in other words, uh, like, well, if you started making some T-shirts, I might write and say, like, hey, uh, I'd like to uh, talk to you about that, or something, but, but uh, I mean, I can't stop somebody saying, uh, you know, James and Peter uh, Kofiers, or whatever, or, or, or hairdressers. Well, I like that, there, that people might think about it. I've started to exhibit this big light box that shows that ant. It, I just got it in August, so I don't know what it's going to mean. And, uh, but for me, it's fun. I love all the confusion and whatever happens with it.
1: So I think we've got time for one last question from the back here. Okay. It's a burning question.
9: I'm just really curious why you didn't join the ad industry in the so-called golden age of the 60s and 70s, part of the creative department. In the where? In, in, the ad agency, in an ad agency or in the ad industry, um, part of the creative department as an art director. I'm just really curious as to... Well,
2: you. I tried all that, but I, I okay. did a little bit, but then some of the... I don't know, the ad people think that they have a corner on all that. And so, I, you know, as an artist, I mean, they, they have to be more open to work with people like myself or... Uh, not all artists think like I do that make art, but I, I think I, I end up, I'm always thinking about ideas and how, to, how they have a universal impact and different things like that. But I'm open to all that if somebody wants to. Okay.
9: And you just didn't find that they sort of thought that way at that time?
2: Yeah, they, they didn't so much. Yeah. So the, the BATS thing was really amazing experiment, but I, I would hope that would happen a lot more in our whole society if we can do it with corporations or things.
1: Right, so I think at this point, let me get past this zone. The microphone goes funny there. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, One thing I've enjoyed in meeting you and working with you is your generosity and your ability to bring out creativity in others, which I think I'm hearing with some of these questions. Obviously, it's got people's minds working, so thank you so much.
2: Well, that's just all part of that teaching thing I've been about all these years. So thanks again for coming.
1: Just before everybody goes, I'd like to tell you about a couple of upcoming programs. On Saturday the 14th of April, which is only a week on Saturday, we have a symposium about the convergence of mental illness and creativity in the 21st century with some really interesting speakers. The keynote speaker is Kay Redfield Jamison, who is John Hopkins. She's a psychiatrist who's written a lot of books about bipolar disorder and so on. Um, then we start Picasso programming. On May 9th, we have Gus Casely-Hayford, who's a wonderful art historian um, and curator from England, or from Ghana and England. who's going to come and talk about Picasso's relationship with African art, and actually his great indebtedness to African art. He's a wonderful speaker, so please come from that for that. We have Alan Wilkinson, who is a curator here. And uh, responsible for certainly a lot of the Moors that we have. He's going to be talking about early 20th century European sculpture. That's May 16th. Um, Please keep tuned in. Oh, we have uh, people from Sotheby's coming on June 6th and they're going to talk about the Picasso market, which will be really interesting. Uh, We have Josh, Joshua Nelman. What date is he, Kathleen? I can't remember. Thank you. Oh, it's next week. Oh, my goodness, I'll be here on Wednesday, too. So, and, and he's talking about uh, the... What's the book called? Sorry. Thank you. Yes. It's Art, Art. So he's talking about... Which goes very nicely with the, 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 the value of the Picasso talk, actually. So he's talking about art theft. So please do look on the website for more talks. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.